and welcome to another edition of the Pink Sheets Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin-Smith, senior editor Sue Sutter, and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. This week was one of the rare moments during the pandemic where COVID-19 did not overshadow just about everything the FDA did. Instead, the focus was on oncology as the agency conducted a marathon three-day advisory committee meeting to determine whether the multiple indications granted through the pathway for three PD-1-L1 inhibitors should remain in place. The so-called dangling accelerated approvals were called into question after the products failed their confirmatory trials. Sue, you were part of our team that covered the meeting and listened to the entire thing. What were your biggest takeaways? Well, um, sponsors fared pretty well. They prevailed in four out of six cases. Um, Two of the cases where they did not prevail, um, Keytruda in GI cancer third line and Updevo in hepatocellular uh, second line. There have been some pretty substantial changes in the treatment landscape um, for those both of those uh, therapeutics. There are now uh, immunotherapies approved in the first line with regular approval in the first line. And so that's one of the reasons why these drugs were brought to ODAC is to consider whether or not they should still maintain their accelerated approvals, particularly since in FDA's view, these uh, the confirmatory trials for those original accelerated approvals have not panned out. So I think that was a, a key influencing factor for the committee. Um, also, the you know the sponsors in all of these cases, the sponsors were proposing a number of additional trials that might serve to provide confirmatory evidence when the original confirmatory trials did not pan out. And generally, the the committee looked more favorably upon those ongoing trials that were due to report in the next within the next year or two, as opposed to some that were much more distant in the future. One one um, panelist, I think, on the Katruda GI meeting said he did not want to see these accelerated approval indications lasting ad infinitum, which I thought was interesting. Hmm. And then we also saw the power of PASDER. Uh, <laughs> the two negative decisions for sponsors across the six indications, in those two decisions, he was quite vociferous about his opinion. And uh, it was quite clear where he stood on the status of those indications. Uh, with Keytruda and third line, he pretty much made it clear that they don't see a role for third line immunotherapy in gastric cancer. They see a role in first line therapy, which is where a survival benefit has been demonstrated. And with Updevo in second line hepatocellular cancer, he really went after Bristol-Myers Squibb when the sponsor asserted that this indication should remain on label for people who could not get the combination of Optivo and Yervoy, which is also under accelerated approval but has a much higher response rate. And he basically demanded to see the data from Bristol-Myers Squibb on Updevo's efficacy in these patients who could not get the updevo yervoy combination. And as we all knew, after 10 minutes of discussion about this, there was no data on this. So it's not surprising that the two negative decisions were those where he was um, most vocal. 
And then finally, I just, I do think accelerated approval is alive and well at FDA Oncology and nothing is going to change that. But I think there is going to be more public scrutiny of these so-called dangling indications uh, when the confirmatory trials fail to, to show benefit. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we sort of kind of go to some sort of annual meeting of the ODAC where they take up these issues for these specific indications. And I wouldn't be surprised if they move outside of the immunotherapy area either going forward. Well, that's very interesting. I'm sure sponsors would not be excited to have to defend themselves every once in a while when they get these, you know, at an annual meeting or something like that. Um, it has to be quite an undertaking for the yeah. sponsors. I mean, I think the Genentech, the lead for Genentech, they had two products, they had two indications at issue, and their lead said he just joined Genentech in March. <laughs> and he was, you know, he was leading their team on two separate indications. So it, it you know, it's quite a chore, I think. But, you know, that's part of the bargain, right? You're able mm -hmm. to come to market earlier on the basis of a surrogate likely to predict clinical benefit. Well, you've got to defend that if your confirmatory trials fail. Mm -hmm. Sarah, you were also a part of the team that covered the meeting. Did you did you have any observations? Yeah, I mean, the one thing I would definitely emphasize is what I think Sue was talking a little bit about in terms of accelerated approval being kind of alive and well is that you could definitely, um, from the panels I listened to, there's a reluctance, I think, among um, committee members to sort of take an option away from patients once it's out there, even if um, the benefit is maybe very unclear or maybe even if it's probably a very small pool of the patients it's indicated for that may really do well with the product potentially. Um, it just seems like when you have these, you know, really um, people that really have these really, you know, poor prognoses, um, once you put an option out there um, and anybody sort of sees any like sliver of, of benefit of possibility that the, you know, the curve may um, end up, you know, panning out for them. They don't like to take it back. Um, and there was a little bit of discussion, though not a lot, um, about kind of the, because m all these drugs have indications that would keep them on the market in other spaces. So, of course, there could be off-label use. Um, but there was like a little bit of talk about, you know, how that would then impact patients in terms of costs if insurers, if they sort of have access to the drug, but maybe not at great coverage levels or if they would have to pay out of pocket and the impacts of that. And I think that's sort of the, the elephant in the room that you don't really get into at these FDA meetings, but covering drug pricing, it's certainly been a hot topic lately, is if you're going to sort of put these products out fast before, you know, they've really fully proven, you know, clinical benefit in terms of overall survival or quality of life and so forth. Um, you know, a lot of groups feel like you need to have some kind of discount on the cost, and these are really expensive drugs. And I think that's where um, a lot of people's tolerance for accelerated approval starts to maybe fade, <laughs> is, you know, they would be 
okay with with it if there was some kind if the price seemed more reasonable compared to the known benefit. But yeah, can Sarah, you, you price by indication? My understanding is you can. <laughs> I'm not sure it's the easiest thing to do in the U.S. Um, but I think there has certainly been talk about that as being something potentially that could be done. Sarah, you uh, covered the uh, ICER meeting where they talked about their uh, report uh, on uh, accelerated approval, and it seems like some of those ideas were either for kind of having a you know lower reimbursement threshold for products that hadn't gotten uh, um, you know uh, their confirmatory trials done, or some sort of kind of expiration um, of the approval if it didn't uh, you know get confirmed in a certain amount of time. You know, do you think that's obviously sort of kind of you know ideas on the reimbursement side and ideas on the regulatory side, uh, respectively? There, but do you think that there is uh, um, going to be a push to sort of kind of maybe sort of formalize some of those um, uh, efforts uh, either through through PDUFA or uh, um, uh, you know otherwise to sort of kind of make uh, make more of a uh, you know carrot and or stick approach to uh, to the met, to the uh, accelerated approval pathway. I guess the place where it seems closest and it, and not particularly close to maybe being formalized is that the Medicaid um, advisory committee um, has sort of recommended that in that program there be higher rebates given for accelerated approval um, products. So it'd be interesting to see if sort of the through rulemaking CMS can follow through with that or if Congress takes that up. Um, and I think um, one interesting thing, I guess, about a lot of these products would be they're probably very heavy on the Medicare side of things. So in some ways, potential, I'm not sure how many of these patients would be on private insurance and if you could sort of tackle the payment side of this um, through Medicare, in some ways that probably might be easier to get done. But it would be interesting if in, I haven't heard as much talk on the FDA side, like, um, if any of these things would come up in the user fee agreement, certainly I don't, or in the legislation that comes along with it, certainly I don't think sponsors would voluntarily um, agree to most of these ideas. And I think, and as they often take issue with ICER's reports, I think um, the white paper is probably not something that went over well with them. Well, and this is something the insurance companies, you know, could private insurance companies could you know, do on their own too. I mean, they have their own P&T committees and they make their own decisions. We've seen that before with full approvals, accelerated approvals just don't get coverage or they get coverage at a different level than other drugs. I mean, you know, I guess I mean, that that's one of my questions. That was one of my questions for you all coming out of this meeting. I mean, the fact that they had a meeting had to have at least raised the ears of the reimbursement community you know, questioning whether this should, you know, continue to be covered, right? I mean, I'm sure that the insurance community is paying attention. Um, I mean, one thing that um, I saw some folks, I think, talking about this on Twitter is, like, there's not a lot of price. There's a lot of PD-1 inhibitors out there, similar products. Um, I don't think there's a lot of price competition in the space. And obviously, as we saw in this meeting, a lot of them have, like, slightly different indications and data, but I'd be curious like to learn more about um, the like science there as to like, are these drugs really interchangeable? And um, you know, why, if they're, if they are, why isn't there price competition? If they aren't, like, I'd be more interested to understand, you know, why does, 
why did one of these PD-1 or L1 inhibitors work in one setting and then the other one doesn't? Because um, that was sort of, I mean, that sort of fascinated me at the the meeting, like, to sort, because my meeting was looking at two very similar drugs and a similar indication, and um, some of the data just didn't line up. And um, But that's certainly, you would think, something insurance companies might look at if that was possible like could they just could they have sort of a preferred pd1 um product on their formula where they could get you know better pricing and i have often been to sarah's point they really the the committee members did not do any sort of you know comparison like that in terms of well why would this one work in third line and this one won't there was very little of that I have uh, often been uh, surprised uh, how little uh, price competition there is when there are multiple, uh, you know, uh, brands in the same class. Uh, obviously, sort of once uh, generics come in and really sort of kind of multiple generics, then sort of kind of the uh, um, prices start to drop. But uh, um, uh, it's uh, um, it's an interesting uh, question about the dynamics of the. Uh, um, uh, you know, sort of the the U.S. Uh, pharmaceutical market. So, uh, um, so that was a great. Uh, um, a great point you made about sort of kind of how the uh, um, the committees mostly sort of kind of seem to uh, um, you know accept sort of kind of the uh, the company rationale for uh, um, you know what was going on with the product. Do you think that FDA was surprised by the votes? Were they sort of going in here sort of hoping there's were kind of uh, for six strikeouts and uh, um, you know didn't uh, um, didn't get what they wanted, or do you think that they sort of kind of brought some of these before the committee so that there would be sort of a uh, a balance of sort of kind of uh, negative and positive opinions about uh, about the products? I don't think FDA thought it was going to get six strikeouts. I don't think they were looking for six strikeouts. Um, I think there were some more glaring examples than others. Um, in one case for one of the drugs, the confirmatory trial has not even completed yet in terms of its overall survival data. So there were some comments about, well, we think it's premature. <laughs> to take this off the market now when, you know, we'll get the overall survival final analysis in about a year. So I feel like maybe since there were was similarity in a number of these indications, they felt like they had to kind of bring them together um, to the committee, if, especially if they each failed to meet their primary endpoint in a confirmatory trial. Um, but each drug was definitely weighed on its own merits. They gave, FDA gave the presentation on accelerated approval six times over the course of that three-day period, and it was essentially the same presentation. So, you know, each drug was individually evaluated. However, my, my take on it is that there, you know, FDA also wasn't looking for any extensive debate on the use of the accelerated approval process. Things were very tightly scheduled, and this was almost like a drive-through review. Uh, Sarah and I have both noted there was almost there was really no discussion between their clarifying questions or the open public hearing and their vote. They just went from one into the other. Whereas those of us who cover a lot of these advisory committee meetings, there often will be you know discussion and debate among the panelists prior to a vote. Yeah, including questioning the wording of the voting question and, you know, what that means and how we well, should take things and, yeah. 
There was a little of that, but yeah. not not too much. Not I as mean, much as usual. In some ways, I like the idea of them sort of voting before discussing to a certain degree, because then you you realize like people can't be as influenced by their fellow panelists. But yeah, I just feel like the thing I always find the most fascinating or interesting about advisory panels, specific, especially because, you know, we read the briefing documents well in advance. So a lot of that, a lot of the meeting ends up being repetitive for us until you hear the committee speak and valuing their insights and their different expertise that they were brought there for and just essentially getting like a line or two out of them for sort of a whole day at work seems um, <laughs> a little bit um, silly to me. I mean, and again, maybe I'm just biased because that's what I find most interesting. But I, I would think FDA would want to get more than just that thumbs up or thumbs down from them, particularly because in the past, you always hear FDA talk about how the vote isn't really oftentimes what's most important to them. It is like understanding the reasoning and the thought process and so forth. And um, lately, it seems like FDA isn't leaving a lot of time to, you know, ask more discussion type questions of committees and get more thoughtful um, feedback from them. Right. We've and, certainly seen that pattern with the COVID vaccines, where it seems to be a very rushed discussion and vote at the end of the day for those products. And while we're on meeting logistics, we should also mention that there was a substantial technical problem that hindered the accelerated approval meeting, at least the first day, um, illustrating that virtual meetings still are not perfect, even, what are we, a year year plus into, into it now? Um, Sue, you noted there was a 75-minute delay coming out of a break. 75-minute delay due to some Ooh. technical problems. It was clear they were having issues with audio throughout the meeting because, as a member of the public, I couldn't hear anything, but you could see the closed captioning still going at times, and then they would stop the meeting, and they would try to fix it. So, And then the real debacle was at the very end of Tuesday's session on Tocentric and breast cancer, after they voted and they announced and posted the voting total, then there was they completely lost audio for those of us of the viewing public. And the advisory members explained their votes, but with no audio. So you were entirely reliant on the closed captioning, which is never very good. So in, in my opinion, it was a real oversight by the FDA to allow that meeting to continue until the audio had been reestablished. I know that they were running probably about an hour behind at that point because of the earlier technical problems, but this is not boosting their case for transparency when people cannot get a good explanation of why an advisory committee member voted the way they did. I, I would uh, heartily concur, uh, Sue. I know that... Uh, um, uh, Derek was saying that the uh, um, uh, ASIP uh, coverage uh, um, or the ASIP meeting, uh, um, their, their first one uh, to discuss the J and J pause, obviously sort of different, uh, different agency, different issue, but sort of kind of it was you know nearly impossible to sort of kind of tell who was talking because they, uh, you know, they, they did not uh, have the uh, the cameras turned on, didn't identify themselves, and uh, um, you know the. Uh, um, there was at one point they kind of revealed that they, I guess they could see they could see each other on the Zoom, but uh, they didn't want us to see, they didn't want the public to see them, see them. So they, uh, um, it was just sort of kind of a uh, an exercise and sort of kind of not uh, not being as, as transparent as possible. So, and I don't know why FTA has all these problems. The uh, the, the Zoom for government is for kind of this sort of kind of whole different sort of kind of uh, 
you know, secure thing that seems to, at least the, the ones that I've been on, have, have worked uh, worked pretty well. I know there was sort of some security issues early on, but uh, if they're looking for uh, ways to make this smoothie, smoother, and maybe we are in the uh, the waning months of uh, sort of virtual meetings now, but sort of, but uh, um, you know, they could uh, they could go that road, and I would encourage them too. Well, and and the the transparency issue isn't just a a public issue. I mean, it's it's potentially an FDA issue as well because I mean we saw during I believe it was the one of the COVID vaccine advisory committees they lost audio at the very beginning for maybe ten minutes where they and they just kept talking and it was a significant issue. Uh, the reason that's why I remember it because I wanted to to look back and see what they said and when they finally posted the official transcript it didn't have that section in there. It just said audio was lost. So you lost that entire, potentially FDA, if they wanted to consider this, whatever that issue was, they lost that entire conversation. So they're reliant on their own notes or their own memory potentially for that. I mean, I could see, you know, I could see a similar situation happening here where they want to know what the comments were and the transcriptionist is going to, is not going to have a reliable uh, recording to be able to, to tell them what they said. It's an unacceptable situation for a public meeting. Yeah. So our next story this week comes from President Biden's first speech to Congress. While he mentioned during the speech that Medicare should negotiate drug prices, the White House is not going to include drug pricing reform to pay for the massive economic recovery package that is on the way. Biden suggested price negotiations be included in a broader and separate health care bill, which may mean it won't get done too quickly. There seems to be some concern that the issue still could create problems for the farm industry going forward, though. So, Matt or Sarah, how, how do you all think this one's going to play out? I, I mean, I think it's a it was a pretty interesting punt, I guess, to me. Um, I, everybody was sort of expecting this to come up in this next sort of America's Families Plan infrastructure package. Um, it still seems like Democrats, particularly in the House and even a few in the Senate, like Ron Wyden, want the topic addressed as part of this plan. So certainly um, Congress has a lot of control here. Perhaps they'll still try. But um, yeah, I thought it was a little bit strange for Biden to sort of tout that strongly in his speech, but then not try and do it at a time when um, Congress seems invested in it. Granted, again, the the exact details of it and getting enough Democrats on board in the Senate wouldn't necessarily be, um, you know, incredibly easy. But um, it, it does seem a little bit like, I, you know, you have to question quite how on board Biden actually is with doing this. Um, although I think um, thinking about it a little bit more, though, um, I do sort of wonder how pushing the issue, if they do come back to it later, whether that would be helpful potentially politically. Obviously, right now we're in a phase where, um, you know, the drug industry's reputation is probably higher than it often is in the U.S. with, you know, people getting vaccinated and getting their lives really changed a lot um, thanks to pharmaceutical innovation. So perhaps their thought process is this isn't the time to go after the industry, but maybe if as COVID fades a little bit, um, they may find it's a little bit politically easier. I don't know. Obviously, you get into election season and that always messes things up with Congress as you get closer to 2022. Um, but it, it, 
it's just I think everyone was sort of expecting this was the next big fight for drug pricing. And it seems like um, industry may get out of this one pretty easily. Yeah, it certainly makes philosophical sense. The uh, alignment that uh, Biden is uh, arguing for that we're kind of putting the uh, price negotiation uh, language in a subsequent bill on, you know, health insurance uh, um, reform overall. So we're kind of using that pay for it. We're going to perhaps expand the, uh, um, you know, insurance and uh, um, and so forth. You can see sort of why that uh, um, that linkage makes sense. But it uh, it is also a political convenience for uh, um, for him to uh, to make that argument because we're going to it would be a, le- a less bruising fight to get the. Uh, um, the infrastructure and jobs package through, assuming they're kind of that they can sort of, you know, overcome the uh, the pay for uh, hurdles without the uh, um, relying on the pharmaceuticals to uh, um, to you know avoid having that uh, um, adversary for this uh, this endeavor. Uh, um, it's interesting sort of kind of how uh, um, how Biden has chosen to prioritize them. You know, obviously sort of kind of uh, you know famously uh, um, uh, referred to uh, Obamacare as a uh, um, you know, a big uh, bleeding deal, um, and uh, you know, is you know committed to that uh, um, uh, endeavor in terms of sort of expanding uh, um, expanding coverage. And uh, obviously, the the only way to do that is, is to somehow address uh, um, address pricing in a real way, uh, be it for pharmaceuticals or for uh, you know hospital care or other uh, um, other healthcare services. So uh, um, you know, on the other hand, he's also uh, um, you know been uh, you know someone who sees the uh, She's the real value in uh, pharmaceutical research. The uh, uh, the cancer uh, moonshot, uh, you know, near and dear to his heart. Uh, um, after his, uh, his uh, after Bo, uh, his son uh, uh, passed away, and uh, um, uh, you know, obviously, uh, um, you know, he uh, um, uh, appreciates and uh, you know promotes the vaccine. So he's uh, um, um, in alignment on for kind of the uh, the need for uh, um, uh, pharmaceutical innovation. But uh, um, uh, whether or not he can through kind of uh, 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 get Pharma this reprieve that he seems to have. Uh, um, by the way, he's sequenced his, uh, things. I think I think uh, um, remains to be seen, but he's probably uh, um, going to uh, be able to do that. And then it sort of kind of uh, uh, you know behooves the uh, the pharmaceutical firms to uh, you know find a way to uh, either, as you're saying, Sarah, sort kind of uh, continue to uh, you know burnish their image or uh, come up with a plan that uh, you know somehow. Uh, Benefits consumers without uh, disrupting the revenue revenue model too much. Uh, you know the um, the tactical victory of uh, Obamacare was that they uh, um, you know pledged to help reduce the donut hole uh, by uh, um, uh, and then sort of kind of avoided kind of direct negotiations of uh, of prices. So uh, you're coming up with something along those lines that's going to help consumers and sort of kind of uh, um, you know uh, um, allows them to. Uh, to continue to develop drugs and sell them in the uh, the manner that they have, I think would be uh, would be would be the real victory there for them. Mm-hmm. So th- th- this is, this is the thought that that Matt that that I actually had about this when I was thinking about it was that you know is there any incentive for industry to kind of do a similar kind of deal the way they did with Obamacare where they engaged and kind of got things at least partially how they wanted it to look just to get get this off the table so that it isn't constantly hanging over their head every couple of years or every time a new administration comes in or a presidential campaign starts or whatever. If you can say like, hey, we, you know, we took care of this, then there, you know, you, you really can't, it's hard to argue about it anymore. I mean, Jim Greenwood at Bio has sort of been saying this for like a couple of years now, I think, <laughs> that um, 
you know, basically that industry needs to sort of come up with some kind of compromise that, right, that gets them um, where they're willing to maybe give a little bit on something um, and get them out of, you know, longer term problems. I think the question becomes what 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 does pharma have to give and how would it be received? I mean, the latest report they put out um, on the topic, I think you'd it would be hard to quantify like a huge amount of taxpayer savings from what they propose. They've certainly proposed things where individual patients might feel the savings potentially through, you know, changes to PBM um, rebates and so forth. Um, but if you're looking at this from like a taxpayer c- Congress, looking at this sort of as a budgetary issue where, you know, they're looking for government savings, um, they haven't been willing to, you know, propose a lot of solutions on that front. Um, I don't know, potentially do they warm up to some of the like inflation penalties as an idea, maybe to get out of drug negotiation because they would have more control over that process in terms of initial price setting and, you know, being able to sort of maneuver themselves to avoid some of those hits potentially. But I think that's like the big thing is what can pharma come up with that's like attractive enough to policymakers to kind of keep them um, from being, you know, the cutting on the cutting room floor, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, it's the adage, if you're if you're not sitting at the table, you're on the menu. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, if you look at sort of kind of, uh, you know, obviously, uh, um, Jim Greenwood, who is at uh, uh, Bio, is a big uh, advocate of the deal. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, Billy Towson's were kind of uh, guided pharma through the uh, um, Obamacare negotiations. And, uh, you know, they were, they were, they were former uh, congressmen. And they sort of kind of that's, uh, um, you know, kind of the, uh, the, the era in which they were in Congress and the, uh, um, the ethos that they brought to the uh, um, trade associations when they uh, – uh, when they ran them was, uh, you know, let's sort of kind of, uh, um, you know, cut these deals and sort of kind of try and make everyone happy. I uh, I don't know if Congress sort of kind of works that uh, um, that way anymore. I think it would be, uh, be good if it did. Um, and uh, you know, they're, they're certainly not sort of kind of in the uh, um, in the positions that sort of kind of to uh, to advocate for those in the same uh, the those kind of deals in the same way anymore. You know, I think the the, the fundamental question for for uh, for for industry is, you know. Is this going to pass, you know, even if we're not at the table? And, um, you know, if, if they think that's yes, then they should really need to come to the table. But if they think they can stop it without, you know, having to cut a deal, maybe that's that's the route for them to uh, to try. And, you know, given the uh, the the thin margin that the Democrats are uh, operating with, uh, you know, perhaps their, uh, their negative calculus could be the, the correct one there. Yeah, it's definitely another one of those, you know, interesting uh, discussions and, and so forth that we're going to follow, um, you know, as we go forward here. Um, finally, today, we're going to take a look at the tragic situation in India where COVID-19 is spreading quickly and supri- supplies are running short. The U.S. is sending oxygen, ventilators, testing and other supplies to to the country to help deal with the short with shortages. The U.S. is also committed to donate some of the supply of the, some of its supply of the AstraZeneca vaccine once it, the FDA has determined there is no manufacturing issues. Uh, but one of the suspected reasons that supplies are short is because the U.S. Defense Production Act is preventing export of some of those items. Uh, Bio CEO Michelle McMurray Heath said the the Biden administration's use of DPA power was misguided at this stage, 
adding that raw materials need to get to where manufacturing capacity is located. Industries also, industry also has agreed that IP protection should not be waived to allow for faster vaccine production. So I'm curious where you all what you all think on this one. I mean, are we uh, is the U.S. on the wrong side of this debate by arguing that it's not hoarding, you know, raw materials through DPA? I mean, do we do we eventually get to the stage where we start relaxing IP protections to you know so so some some countries can get the vaccine that they need to kind of stop the you know these these massive outbreaks from happening? I mean, this is a really complicated you know political calculus. Um, and obviously, even in a few weeks, it seems like the situation has shifted quite a bit for the U.S., you know, because we were at a point where people were clamoring for vaccines and couldn't get appointments. And now we've moved to a point where um, it's not a it's a more of a demand issue, not a supply issue at this point. Um, I think the the Biden administration is arguing that DPA isn't completely completely, you know, preventing exports of raw materials. It just sort of makes sure the U.S. has their supply shored up first. Um, the industry is, likes, is, I think, likes to point to that because they're being hammered on, you know, being willing to kind of share IP and process information to manufacture this. And they're their argument is, you know, it, it has nothing to do with the IP. It has to do with materials and so forth. Um, but obviously, it, it is, a, um, you know, India is a huge country. The U.S. did move this week to make some supplies and vaccine access available to them, as well as other, you know, materials for fighting COVID. But it's it's a very small fraction of what the country actually needs. I think the, the issue, um, I mean, I don't think the U.S. is going to, move in this way, but there's been people in the public health space that have talked about, well, should the U.S. be vaccinating its younger population before they share more vaccine with other parts of the globe for old for the older population that's much more at risk of COVID um, first? And it, it, I, I don't think that's going to happen. I think the U.S. will vaccinate its, you know, children probably first before they share a lot bigger quantities. But I think that's where you're going to um, see some tension because people are going to argue that children are largely, you know, protected from the worst sort of outcomes from this disease, while we have huge swaths of the world that have no vaccine access for very vulnerable populations. I, I think you uh, really sort of hit on the uh, the profound tension there uh, quite well, uh, uh, Sarah, you know, sort of the, the, the uh, um, you know, it's, it would be Good if sort of kind of the, the the democracy could decide to sort of kind of to, to uh, uh, help others, uh, you know, before they sort of kind of uh, satisfied themselves. I uh, um, I see that sort of kind of as a as a as some uh, a, a difficult uh, case for a politician to, to make. Although I would love to see some uh, um, some scenario in which they could sort of kind of uh, use the donation of the uh, um, uh, vaccines abroad to sort of somehow overcome. Uh, vaccine hesitancy like so somehow like you know that the you're you know rile, rile up the uh um uh the uh the, the right by somehow like you know framing it as joe biden doesn't think you deserve the vaccine he's giving it away to other countries and maybe that could uh, overcome the uh the uh the the, the partisan hesitancy we're we're seeing right uh, um right now and uh, um maybe that could drive people to get their uh, their shots i think it's an open question as a sort of you know what uh, um you know, I, you know, I obviously not a uh, uh, aware of sort of kind of how the uh, 
the stocking issues are going. But you know, just like you were saying, should the um, you know, should we vaccinate uh, the the more vulnerable in the world before we uh, vaccinate the less vulnerable here? Is the production of the mRNA vaccines more um, inefficient, uh, you know, than say sort of the, the production of the AstraZeneca vaccine? You know, could those uh, uh, you know bioreactor bags you know, produce more doses of a different kind of vaccine as opposed to sort of where they're being allocated uh, uh, now through the Defense Production Act and the same kind of uh, you know trade-off between sort of kind of uh, you know what as a uh, um, as a democracy should we uh, should we ask of ourselves? But uh, you know, obviously, we, we like to think of ourselves as a global leader, and this would be sort of a way to uh, uh, a way to do it. Uh, you know, maybe we should have uh, gone the uh, the UK route and all just gotten one shot uh, first, and then sort of kind of uh, uh, move back to uh, do the uh, the second dosing. But uh, um, you know, I uh, I fear there's not going to be sort of kind of that kind of uh, high-minded even debate as you're uh, suggested uh, suggesting, Sarah. So who? Uh, um, Hopefully the uh, the new nations that are on their way will sort of kind of help uh, ameliorate the situation, but it, it is sort of kind of a uh, distressing way to sort of kind of see this uh, pandemic kind of uh, grind on. Um, I know this sounds this sounds terrible, and I know it won't happen, but I'm waiting for a, a country or a leader of somewhere who has nothing to lose to just say, you know what, we've got it, we're going to make it. Stop me, and. <laughs> You know, just just see what happens. I mean, what 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 are we gonna do? You know, I, well, I mean, I mean, I'm 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 being serious. I mean, what 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 will we do? Uh, I don't I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question, and I don't know if anyone actually has the IP to be able to do to do that. But you know, at some point, you're gonna have you know people starting to wonder, like you know, I have the ability to make this right now. Why can't I just make it? So it will put the companies in an awkward position. Yeah, especially since they're they're making it around the world, including in India, where they're having yeah they're having a lot you know they're having all this trouble. So, well, that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this in previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to the Pink Sheet Farmer Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith, Sue Sutter, and Matt Hobbs. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time.